Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you are all doing well. I hope you're all thawed out. We had quite the exciting couple weeks, haven't we? Um, Well, as you know, we're nearing the end of the book of Acts, and we probably, maybe, could have finished it all in just one more lesson, but we're going to be looking at the first half of Acts chapter 28 this morning. Acts chapter 28, following the Apostle Paul in his journey to Rome. And as we know that uh, this story is not just the story of Paul and Peter and those around him. This really is the story about the ministry of the Lord, the continuing of his teaching, of his actions here on this earth. And though we are nearing the end of the book of Acts, the story itself does not end. It hasn't ended yet, and it's going to go on into eternity, the work that the Lord Jesus is doing. So Acts chapter 28, and we're going to read the first 16 verses of the chapter. Acts chapter 28, starting in verse 1. And when they had been been brought safely through to shore, then we learned that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us extraordinary affection. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were waiting for him to soon swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a little long time and seen nothing unusual happen to him, changing their minds, they began to say that he was a god. Now in the areas around that place, there were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was laying afflicted with fever and dysentery. And Paul, going to see him and having prayed, laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and being healed. And they bestowed on us many honors of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. Now at the end of three months... We set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put into Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and after a day when a south wind sprang up, on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome." And the brothers, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius in the three inns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Our Father, we do thank you that we can gather together here freely, gather together here to 
continue reading of the story, the story of Jesus and his love as we see it through his apostles, through his saints from centuries ago. And I pray that as we consider the love of Christ that we see here, that we would also recognize the love and work of Christ that is happening in our own lives. I pray that we'd be able to draw lessons and applications even from this passage that we have before us this morning. We ask that you bless this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as we know, as uh, we've seen, Paul has gone through quite an ordeal to get to where he was. The last chapter, we followed him in his uh, account and the account of him going out to sea, facing death at every turn, shipwreck, uh, drowning, starvation, all kinds of horrible things that could have happened to him along the way. And yet throughout it, we see God and his protection and his guiding hand delivering him and the crew that he was with to safety. And now they are run aground on the island of Malta. And when we last left them off, they were swimming to the island and they had arrived there. And verse 1 says they had been brought safely to shore. Then we learned that this island was called Malta. Malta, and you can always refer to your, if you have maps in the back of the Bible, it may be helpful to look and see the map. But Malta is about 58 miles off the coast of Sicily in Italy. And it's a small island. Our maps make it look a little bit bigger than it actually is. It's approximately 18 miles long by eight miles wide. So uh, it really was a uh, landing here in at that time really would have been like finding a needle in a haystack. Remember the ship was being driven by the winds and it was completely out of control and the crew was despairing even for their lives. They had pretty much tossed everything overboard just to keep the ship from sinking. And now they're being driven by the wind straight to this island. Uh, so it really was a miraculous divine thing that they landed where they did. And just as Paul had uh, been told by the angel that visited them, all lives on the ship were spared, but the ship itself was destroyed when it ran aground. Uh, perhaps at the bay, what is now called the Bay of St. Paul. They didn't call it that back then, but uh, they've now... Uh, located what they think is where the ship ran aground. And as they're on the island, we see something really interesting, a, a tremendous hospitality and affection that the native people have for them. And the natives, verse 2, showed us extraordinary affection. For because of the rain that it had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and had received us all. So they land and they meet with the natives. And if you have a King James, it might say, we met with the barbarians. And we hear that word barbarian, and that usually has a kind of a negative connotation. When you hear the word barbarian, you might think of the, you know, the TV shows, the, the swords and boards, and you know, the guys who are really rough and tumble. Maybe you think of your kids when you hear the word barbarian. I don't know. Uh, but really, that word barbarian, it, it has a more technical meaning. It's not the way that Luke uses it and the way uh, that the authors of Scripture use it. It simply describes someone who doesn't speak Latin or Greek. And the reason they're called barbarians is because when they talked to the Latin or the Greek mind, it sounded like they were just saying bar, 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 bar. 
right? Uh, so that's why they're called barbarians, because they said bar, bar, bar. And uh, so uh, these people, they weren't Greek speakers, at least uh, that wasn't the common language of that day. But despite the differences in culture, differences in language, we see that they show them extraordinary kindness we sh- uh, uh, and, or extraordinary affection. And literally, the, the love, or the, the word translated here is the word philanthropy, right? Uh, this word is also found in the Bible, in Titus, another place in the Bible, Titus chapter 3, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. So love for mankind, this is the same love that these islanders, or this, uh, these men of Malta are showing these people who have shipwrecked there. So we see them welcoming these weary travelers, building them a fire to keep them warm from the rain. And I think this is really interesting. Uh, We who are Christians, when we read the Bible, we can have a really bleak view of mankind. And that's not unwarranted. We know that all man is tainted by sin. We know that none stand as righteous before God. We know that there are no good works that will ultimately prevail before God. But we can sometimes get the idea that, well, man is always going to be as worse as they could possibly be. And, And that's not the result. Because the reality is, though we are tainted by sin, though every aspect of us is corrupted by sin, we are still created in the image of God. And those attributes of God that we have, even through our corruption, they shine through. And I think that's something that we see even here among these pagans living on the island of Malta. The, uh, they, too, are created in the image of God. And because of this, they are capable of showing this love. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, as he's writing to them, he says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So no matter where we go, if we run into human beings, there's are th- there are things that we can know about them. It doesn't matter if we'd never met them. It doesn't matter if they're what we call an unreached people group, never have seen the outside world. There are things that we can automatically know about them, and that's because they, just like us, are created in the image of God. And that's because they, just like us, have the law of God written in their hearts. And they, just like us, are corrupted and in need of a Savior. But I I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing to point out, the kindness of even the barbarians, even the, uh, the natives of Malta that they show to these men. A real testimony to the being created in the image of God. And we need to be careful here. This doesn't mean that they're righteous, as I'd already said. But what it does mean is they are created in the image of God. And those, as those who are created in the image of God, they are ripe for the harvest and sharing of the gospel. So we continue reading on. Uh, in verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from sea, justice has not allowed him to live. 
So a fire is burning, keeping the refugees warm, and Paul doesn't merely stand around the fire. We know Paul is a servant, and he demonstrates his servant heart as he's going out and gathering wood to help with this fire. Well, it turns out one of the sticks that Paul returns with just so happens to be a snake. Uh, It would have been fairly cold at that point in time, about 50 degrees. Now, we hear 50 degrees, and we're like, give me that. I'd love it for it to be 50 degrees here. But uh, imagine you're a Mediterranean person living in 80-plus degrees your entire life. Uh, 50 degrees in the rain after being shipwrecked, you're going to be pretty miserable. You're going to be pretty cold. And they've got a fire going. It's around 50 degrees. And when it's that cold, reptiles, including snakes, usually will go dormant for a time. Uh, in fact, this is, uh, we see something really similar to this happening. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, we've at least heard of that guy, lived and fought in World War II. But he spoke of a very similar instance to this uh, account during one of his campaigns. He was in the desert, actually, and uh, deserts, they're really hot during the day, but they're really cold during the night. So the soldiers are gathering sticks and wood for a fire. And Lawrence writes that when the fire grew hot, a long black snake wound slowly out of our group. We must have gathered it torpid with the twigs. So yeah, that'd be uh, quite the shock, right? You're picking up sticks and one just so happens to be a snake. Imagine sitting around a fire and all of a sudden the fire begins to move. I don't like snakes, so that's a uh, really, really creepy imagery to me. But here's the Apostle Paul and something very similar happens to him. He's got his bundle of sticks and he's tossing them in and all of a sudden one of the sticks he threw in jumps back out and latches itself onto his hand and it turns out to be a viper. And to the natives, they knew exactly what this meant. They saw the snake, and they knew that this meant certain death for the Apostle Paul, right? It was stuck to Paul's hand, and usually when snakes strike, they strike and then recoil back. But for whatever reason, the snake got itself stuck in his hand. So they're very easily able to identify it and to know that, ooh, these are the ones that you don't want to get bit by, right? Because uh, we know what happens when people are bit by this snake. They eventually get all puffy and nasty and die a horrid, painful death. Uh, and Luke, likewise, being a doctor, would have had a similar knowledge of snakes and snake bites. He probably would have recognized this too. So a snake leaps out and bite Paul, and they come to the conclusion that, well, Paul must have been a murderer. And in those days, just like in our days, we can have this idea when something bad happens, it, it's probably because you did something bad too. Uh, these islanders, uh, these uh, people on Malta, they must have been very avid readers of the book of Job, right? Except they only read the part where his friends are telling Job, oh, the only reason these bad things are happening is because you did something wrong. Well, that's kind of a, a very basic sense of justice that we have. And, uh, and even these men of Malta, they thought that, well, this man must be a murderer. And, and in fact, uh, when they say that justice has not allowed him to live, they're not merely talking about the concept of justice, but what they're perhaps referring to is a deity who they believe to be justice. 
And because Paul didn't die at sea, this deity now was uh, finally taking its revenge and putting Paul to death for the evil thing that he did. So Justice, a personification of a goddess, the daughter of Zeus. And now Justice had been trying to kill Paul because he's a really bad guy and Justice finally caught up to him. That's what's going on in the minds of these people of Malta. That's what they think. But then what happens? Well, Paul goes on living. Now, when, you know, let's put ourselves there, right? Put yourself in Paul's shoes or maybe even Luke's shoes, right? We're an observer. We're a friend of Paul. We just got through this horrid traumatic ordeal where we could have died. And now a snake you know is venomous is latched to Paul's hand. This could have been a very tragic ending, couldn't it, right? Imagine being that close, so close, and after surviving so much, so many ordeals, right? Adrift at sea, survived so many persecutions, survived being stoned at one point in time, and it all comes to an end because a snake comes and latches onto his hand. What would you do if you're the Apostle Paul at this point in time, right? Oh, no, come on. Why now? Why this? Well, maybe that's what we would have done. But that's not what the Apostle Paul did. What did he do? Verse 5, shook the creature off into the fire, suffered no harm. He's not worried in the slightest. He shakes it off, almost like it's a a mere inconvenience. You ever get a a, a fly that lands on your hand and and, and you don't think about it anymore? It doesn't bother you. I I, I picture the same thing happening with Paul, shaking it off. Snake, how about that? Into the fire. And it burns up. And everyone's sitting around waiting, all right, because we know what happens when a snake bites someone, right? Especially this kind of snake. We know they puff up and drop dead. So they're watching Paul, and they're waiting, but nothing happens. You know, and eventually they begin to change their minds. Instead of thinking that, well, this is an evil man and justice is coming to get him, they begin to think, well, this man must be a god himself, right? So why is it that the Apostle Paul wasn't worried about this? Well, he had already gone through so much, and the Lord had already preserved him through so much that uh, is the Lord really going to be stopped by this snake? Remember, Paul already knew the end. He, at least he knew the destination. He knew where he was going to go. Uh, In fact, the last three years of Paul's life have been centered on him getting to Rome. And this wasn't just uh, some idea that he himself had. This is something that God had revealed to him. God had been telling him, you will get to Rome. You will get to Rome. You will get to Rome. Uh, No matter what happens, you will get to Rome. And nothing will be able to prevent it. Right? So this was a journey that Paul was sure to complete. Uh, And it doesn't matter what he faced throughout that time. It doesn't matter the perils that he faced. He knew that he was going to make it because God himself had told him, right? God has the authority over the sea. God has the authority uh, over whether Paul lives or dies. He has the authority on how exactly that's going to happen and when and where. And Paul knew that he was going to make it to Rome. In fact, he must 
make it to Rome. That's what the angel had told him on, uh, while they were still lost at sea. An angel visited him, remember, and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are with you. So Paul wasn't worried about, again, he wasn't worried about the outside circumstances. He wasn't worried about the professional opinion of the people of Malta. All he knew is, hey, God told me this, so I'm going to believe it, and I can trust in it, and I don't need to let these other things worry me. Jesus has authority over all things, and he delegates this authority to his apostles, his official spokesmen, of whom the apostle Paul was one of them. Uh, Earlier on in the gospel according to Luke, Jesus, as he is talking to the 70 that he sends out, tells them, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, this wasn't necessarily given directly to Paul, but the same principle, I think, applies to those apostles, those whom Christ had sent to be his spokesmen on earth. Don't worry. When, you're, uh, when you are about my business, nothing will harm you. And we might not have that exact same promise, right? We've all probably seen those videos of the internet of those weird and strange churches where they're dancing around with venomous snakes. And then inevitably someone gets bit and they have to go to the hospital because uh, it didn't work out the way that they thought it would. But we do know that God has just as much power in our preservation as we go about his work as he does in the preservation of the Apostle Paul. So uh, we see that God is at work here. But the natives, they're all expectantly waiting for his death. And when this doesn't happen, they change their minds pretty quickly, assuming that uh, he himself is a god. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what resulted from this, but I think it's safe to assume that Paul probably didn't allow them to continue thinking this. There's another place in the book of Acts where the people mistakenly believed uh, that Paul and Barnabas were gods. If we remember all the way back to Acts chapter 14, and we've been doing this series for a while, so this is probably about a year and a half ago when we did this, but all the way back in Acts chapter 14, uh, there uh, was a group of people, we read, uh, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to sacrifice with the crowds to Paul and Barnabas, because they thought they were gods after a miraculous work. But Paul and Barnabas heard of this, and they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from the vain things to the living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness." in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul, at least we see in this other case in Acts chapter 14, and we may be able to to safely assume this happened here as well. Paul wants people to be sure that this isn't me. This isn't some, I'm not some magic man. I'm not some God. I'm not a God myself. This is all due to the power of, of the one true God, the one true God who created all things, who sustains all things, who blesses us with every good thing, the one in whose image we are created in. 
And throughout the scriptures, we see God exercising power over nature in order to point people past the false gods that people make up in their own minds and point them to the one true God. The gods in people's minds are often personifications of things that we find in nature, right? Uh, there's the god of, there's Zeus, the god of thunder and lightning. There's Poseidon, the god of the sea. All of these things, and what do they do? They take these things that are found in nature and say, well, that must be a god, rather than honoring the one true god who created all of these things. Paul says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And that's what mankind does constantly. No matter where you go, you will always find people worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And yet God constantly shows his power over all of these things in order to show that he is the creator. All of these things come from him. Uh, he is the one who has power over all of these things, including all of these so-called gods to whom this power is attributed to. And maybe we see something like this happening here. Remember, in the minds of the people that he's being, uh, the Apostle Paul, well, he must be being judged by the God justice or the goddess justice. But we see here that justice, the goddess, has no power over Paul because justice, the goddess, does not exist. In fact, it is the one true God who has ultimate power over all creation. It's the one true God who has power over that snake, who has power over the venom, who has power over Paul's life and death. And uh, what we see in pretty much every miracle, they ultimately point to that one true God and the truth of who he is. So, uh, again, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what happened, what came of uh, the people of Malta and uh, what Paul's ministry might have looked like there. But I think it's we can be safe in assuming something similar may have happened uh, as we've seen earlier on in the book of Acts. So we continue reading uh, in verse, <coughs> uh, excuse me, verse 7. Now in the areas around that place were lands belonging to the leading men of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. So once again, we see more kindness. They're entertained by this man. Perhaps they, uh, the leader or the procurator of the island. Perhaps he's some kind of Roman governor, because remember, this island would have been under Roman control and jurisdiction. And he too shows great kindness to Paul and his companions and entertains them for three days. And at this time, the father of Hubius had been laying in bed sick, suffering from fever and dysentery. And what the actual disease that this might be describing, we can't know for sure, but there's an actual sickness whose symptoms fit uh, the symptoms of this man. And interestingly enough, this disease is called Malta fever. Malta fever. And remember what island they're on, the island of Malta. And Malta fever, it's a microbe discovered in the 19th century, uh, is transmitted through goat's milk, which would have been a staple in their diets. Remember, this is long before the days of pasteurization. So they're drinking the good stuff right out of the source, and they're drinking all the microbes that may come right along with it. Uh, so, and this, uh, this disease, this Malta fever, uh, is described in this way. People with this sickness may develop fever, sweats, headaches, back pains, physical weakness, 
And in severe cases, the central nervous system and the lining of the heart may be affected. And one form of the illness uh, may also cause long-lasting symptoms, including recurrent fevers, joint pain, and fatigue. And this was a sickness that could last for months, sometimes even years. Now, we have all probably felt some of these symptoms. You know, we've all probably got the flu or something along those lines. Uh, and we hate that, don't we? Achy, miserable, you don't want to get out of bed, got a horrid fever. Imagine having that months and months on end. Well, that's the state that this man uh, was found in, this father of Publius, the leading man of the island, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. So Paul heals him. He does so by laying his hands on him and praying. And he prays because, remember, Paul himself, the power doesn't come from him. He is not God. He has no power in and of himself, ultimately, but is completely subject to the power of God. Paul and all of the apostles are completely dependent on the power of God. And Paul, in his act of prayer, is showing them that, hey, this doesn't come from me. This comes from God, the God, the creator, the God, the one who creates the heavens and the earth. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. Uh, remember Peter when he's speaking to the lame man by the beautiful gates in the temple. He says, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And similarly, Aeneas, uh, later on in the book of Acts, Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Because the book of Acts, yeah, we call it Acts of the Apostles, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we know that the book of Acts is the continuation of all that Jesus taught and did. So when we see these miraculous works, yeah, they're done through uh, Peter, Paul, all these men, these apostles, but who are they representatives of? Of Jesus. So we're seeing the continued work of Jesus even here in Malta, and we're seeing a continuation of this healing ministry that Jesus himself had. So word of this healing begins to spread, and soon all who were on the island who were sick were flooding to the Apostle Paul. Verse 9, uh, after this happened, the rest of the people on the island were, who had diseases were coming to him and were being healed. And we'll find out later that they were on the island for about three months. So this was uh, quite the long amount of time to have a ministry. Uh, we are reminded by this very similar instance in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Luke records this in Luke chapter 4. Uh, he says, then he, Jesus, got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon Peter's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? Uh, suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she got up and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all those who were sick with various diseases were being brought to him. And he was laying his hands on each of them 
and he was healing them. So a very similar passage. And we see that the work of Jesus is not done. It's still being carried on uh, through his apostles at this point of time. And that includes the healing ministry. And we remember the healings, the signs, uh, all of these miraculous works, they're not done just to be done in and of themselves, right? They all have the purpose of pointing ahead to the truth that is being preached. We know uh, that's exactly what Jesus said. More people came looking for him to be healed. And what did Jesus say? He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So why was Jesus there? Yeah, people were healed. Yes, lives were changed in that way. But the ultimate purpose that Jesus was there was to preach the kingdom of God. And why is it that the apostles were sent out to do what they did? Yeah, they healed. They did all kinds of nice and wonderful things like that. But their ultimate purpose, too, was to preach the kingdom of God. And these things uh, serve to point ultimately to the truth that they shared. So we continue reading uh, in verse 10. And the people of Malta, they also bestowed on us many honors of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that they needed. So they furnished him with all that they needed for traveling, uh, marks or honors of respect. And Luke actually uses that word honors, the word translated honors in other places to refer to monetary gifts or payments. So uh, they even may have been paid uh, to, help, uh, to help cover their expenses along the way by these people of Malta, showing a great amount of love and generosity for Paul and for his companions while they were on the island, and caring for them not just while they were on the island, but making sure that they were set as they departed as well. Uh, a great amount of care that we see these people have. And we can be reminded of the, the Samaritan in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we remember who this Samaritan is. Remember, in the minds of the people in those days, Samaritans had no part with the people of God. Those are the people that you stay away from. Uh, those are the people that you have nothing to do with, right? And uh, that's, you know, that's the good Jewish mindset. You know, we seclude ourselves and anyone who looks, sounds, acts different from us, thinks different than us, we exclude ourselves from them. We don't want anything to do with them. But Jesus uses a Samaritan as an example of what a neighbor is, right? The Samaritan who was on a journey came upon the man who was beaten by robbers on the side of the robe, and he felt compassion. And he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him, put him on his own beast, and brought him to the inn to take care of him. And on the next day, he took two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will return, and whatever more you spend, I will return and repay you. Now, don't we see something really similar happening here on Malta with these men taking care of the Apostle Paul? And Jesus asks, which of these proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man he was talking to said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So we can look at this example of mercy. And we may not exactly know the spiritual condition of these men in Malta. We can probably rightly assume Paul did have a teaching ministry there, just as he did everywhere else he went. But we do see this great compassionate love that comes from them merely being created in the image of God. 
And I think we can uh, really take an example from that and how we show hospitality and love to our neighbors who are in need as well. So anyway, we continue on. At the end of three months, verse 11, uh, now at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered on the island, which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. So they're setting sail again. Uh, they'd been in Malta for about three months and get aboard another Alexandrian ship. And we remember it was an Alexandrian ship they were on that had crashed. Uh, there was a, a, a big trade route between Alexandria and Rome. Alexandria, Egypt was one of the big suppliers of grain for the city of Rome. So it's no wonder they found uh, another Alexandrian ship. This one was at least wise enough to hunker down during the winter in order to not experience the same fate of that other ship. So this would have taken place around the beginning of February in 60 AD. And it's around this time that the west winds begin to blow. These are the winds that they need uh, to help keep them on course. And Luke notes, uh, interestingly, that the ship had the twin brothers' figureheads. And uh, these were the gods Castor and Pollux. And these were, again, sons of Zeus. And they were popular gods who were said to bring good fortunes at sea, as well as being gods who guarded truth and punished perjury. And, of course, the Apostle Paul needed no such protection from gods, seeing as he was under the protection of the Lord. Perhaps Luke was pointing out the irony of this. Uh, I, I don't know, but he makes note of it, so I thought I would too. They set sail, and they reached Syracuse. Verse 12, we put into Syracuse, stayed there for three days. This is the capital of Sicily, Syracuse is, uh, and this was the center of Greek culture at the time, about 90 miles from where they set off. And they stay there for about three days. Uh, after that, they reach Regium, and this might be the time where you might want to look in the back of your Bible and look at your map just so we have some idea of where they're going. Uh, moving closer and closer, they reach Regium. This is about another 70 miles from Syracuse. They stay there one day, and this is when a south wind springs up. And this is what they needed in order to get them the rest of the way to Rome. Uh, so they, get, uh, they set sail from there to Puteoli, uh, and this would have been a natural stop. This is where anyone who is sailing to Rome, who is traveling to Rome, would have stopped. Because Rome's a little inland, right? It's not a coastal city. But this is the kind of the main coastal city that people would stop at and disembark and offload all their goods that they're taking to Rome. So they end up stopping there. Uh, and they end up resting uh, for some time there. And while they're there, Paul is able to enjoy some more hospitality, uh, not from the uh, natives, but this time from some Christian brethren as well. Verse 14, there we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And, when the, bro and the brothers, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God for them and took courage. So what a wonderful thing for uh, Paul to have been gone for so long to encounter some great Christian brethren. And this is a, a great reality that I'm sure we've all experienced in some way or another. When we're traveling, when we're away from home, uh, inevitably we will run, if we're looking at least, and we probably don't have to look very hard, we will run into others who are like us. We will run into other 
Christians. And it is a wonderful thing when that happens, and that really does show, uh, um, it really does uh, show that what Jesus said to his disciples, uh, there's none who will leave father, mother, brothers who will not receive a hundredfold of these things in this life, right? When, what's he talking about? I think in that case, he's talking about those Christian brethren who are around us, who are ready to meet our needs when we have those needs. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul found. He found Christians who were already established there. And this wouldn't have been a surprise. Uh, Paul knew that there was an established church of Rome at this time. He'd written a letter to them. By this point in time, the book of Romans had been written. But still, it must have been encouraging to be in their midst. But then word began to get around that the apostle Paul was there, and people began to travel uh, to see him. So at this point in time, it would have been about three years since Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. And at this point, it had likely circulated uh, a fair amount uh, among the believers in that area. Now, who all has a, a favorite Christian author uh, and maybe a favorite Christian book out, outside of the Bible? We all know the Bible's our favorite book, right? But what's your favorite book outside of the Bible, favorite Christian book? How, do you have one in mind? Um, and if the author's dead, pretend he's still alive. Uh, but imagine if you heard that that author was going to be in town. Now, wouldn't you want to visit him and tell him, oh man, God has blessed me so much through your work, right? Well, that's exactly how these people were likely feeling. Paul's in town? The Paul? You mean the one who wrote that wonderful letter to the Romans, explaining our faith to us, making it so clear to us, encouraging us to good Christian unity? He's here? Well, I gotta go see him. So they were encouraged, and not only were they encouraged, but we see that Paul himself was encouraged. Paul sees this, and he thanked God for them and took courage. And now finally, in verse 16, And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. They finally reach Rome, the journey that they had been on, that had been in the works for about three years at this point in time, uh, had finally been completed. Paul probably didn't arrive there the way he planned on doing it, but he was there nonetheless. And while he was there, we see that he was able to stay in his own quarters, his own rented quarters. Um, this was quite a privilege, showing that he had a great deal of trust and respect that he had earned on the journey. And we know that Paul was a low flight risk. Uh, he's one of the few people going to court who actually wants to be in court, right? Uh, Paul, he's giddy to stand before the Roman emperor. And probably because of a combination of these things, he really ha was under uh, a pretty light guard. There was only one soldier there who was guarding him. He had some degree of freedom while he was there, uh, and he was allowed to stay by himself in this house. So in conclusion, what are some things that we can draw from this? Well, we see throughout this, not just this account, but the chapter before it, Paul's faithfulness to continue the work of Christ despite the difficult circumstances around them. Paul was set apart as the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And this was the job that the Lord had given him. And, uh, and not even the chains of imprisonment was going to prevent him from acting as such. Even when he's a place that he didn't expect to be, even when he's surrounded by people he didn't expect it to be surrounded by, he continued to do his job as the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see that uh, the warm reception of Paul and his crew that the natives of Malta had for him. And we see the love that Paul had for them as well in ministering to their own physical needs. Uh, even among these pagan barbarians, we see the image of God shining through and acting in accordance to the law of God written in their hearts. And when we think about people in our own day, it can be very easy for us to separate people out, right? We've got the people who look like, uh, look like us, think like us, act like us, talk like us. But then we've got those other people who are just so hard to reach, right? That's what we may think in our own minds. However, we see that uh, even in the most remote and foreign places from us, we will find people who, who are created in the image of God. And that's all they really need in order to be a candidate for the gospel to be shared with them. We continue to see the hospitality that is shown to Paul by other Christians. A, a great example for us to follow, we must stress this importance of showing hospitality to our own neighbors, especially those in the household of God. This is something that should mark us out as a people, people willing to show hospitality. Now, I get it. In this day and age, there aren't too many people who uh, don't know where their next meal is going to come from, right? Uh, I'm not saving someone's life by allowing them to eat supper with me or anything like that. So uh, it, it's a little bit different in this day. But there are needs that people have that we can supply in hospitality. Not just food or shelter, but what about needs like the need for Christian fellowship? the need for friendship and companionship? How are ways that we can be hospitable towards our brethren in this way, in showing that Christian love? Not just in giving them a meal, but giving them a friend, giving them fellowship, giving them companionship, helping them in this way. And then finally, throughout this, we've seen the overarching theme of uh, the faithfulness of God in accomplishing his purposes in the world. God has been at work in every step of Paul's journey to Rome. There are all kinds of what-ifs that could have made this journey into a disaster, right? Uh, there's all kinds of things that could have completely derailed this, uh, that could have completely destroyed Paul's plans, right? What would have happened if Paul was, was released in Caesarea instead of uh, being allowed to go to Rome? Well, he could have very easily fallen into the hands of the Jews and been put to death. There are many places Paul could have died at sea, could have drowned, could have died of starvation, could have been blown uh, so far off course. There's no hope of them ever reaching a hospitable land before they died. Uh, the residents of Malta could have been less than friendly, right? We've all heard of uh, places where people show up on shore and are immediately put to death by the people that live there. Something like that could have easily happened on Malta, but that's not what happened. Paul well, he could have bloated up and died after he was bitten by the venomous viper. So many what-ifs. But uh, we see that through all of these things, God was with him through it all. And no matter what happened, those what-ifs didn't really matter, right? Because God had a plan, that plan was set, and no matter what happened, it would be accomplished. 
And we might not know the exact specifics of God's plan for us, but we do know the orders that he has given us, and we do have the very same Holy Spirit living within us in order to empower us to accomplish these things that God has set before us. God was with the Apostle Paul through all of this, preparing his way, guarding his steps, ensuring that he would accomplish his purposes in Paul's life. And we can know that this is true for us as well. Because just like Paul, our lives are completely intertwined with the story that God is telling in this world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this time that we've had, this time to read your word, this time to be encouraged uh, at your con- by your continued faithfulness in the life of the Apostle Paul in our own lives as well. I pray that we would see that faithfulness, and I pray that we would seek to be vessels of that faithfulness, those who would show that Christian love and hospitality and compassion that we see the Apostle Paul experiencing. I pray that we would see your hand at work in our lives as we go about seeking to carry out your purposes for us. I pray that we would be obedient in the commands that you have given us in this life. And I pray ultimately that the Lord Jesus would be glorified through all of this. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.